There's a story of Jesus soon after he rose from the dead. He encounters two of his disciples walking on the road to Emmaus. And we're told that he begins to open the scriptures to them and, and point out to the disciples how everything pointed to him. And he, and he said, uh, and they said afterwards, you know, did not our hearts burn as he opened us the scriptures? And I, I sort of had a road to Emmaus moment as we encountered the, the beauty of Jesus, of his love in the way that he cares for people. Uh, so it's worth doing, all that to say. It's a little, a little plug for reading the Bible. Read the Bible. All right, let's, uh, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we do thank you for the gift of your word and the way that your spirit continues to minister to us through it. Uh, Father, we, we pray that this morning as we encounter Jesus in this text, that our hearts would burn that we'd behold him in his goodness, that we'd see his beauty and his love. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now, I typically, no, not typically, just gener- just period, I am not a person that likes to be rushed. Uh, so some of you, I, I know there's a, a game later on, and you might be thinking, I hope this is a short sermon. Don't rush me. Uh, <laughs> No, I, I don't like to be rushed, and, and you might be thinking, you know, who does? Nobody likes to be rushed, but I think I might be particularly sensitive to it. Um, other people, like my wife, for example, are kind. Uh, so when she feels uh, someone rushing her, it doesn't really matter the context. She, she tends to give people the benefit of the doubt. You know, so if she's being rushed in a, in a particular circumstance, she'll think, well, maybe this person is in a hurry, or, or maybe they're having a hard day, or maybe they're late to a funeral. Those are like literally the thoughts that run through her mind. She shares them with me, and I am always astounded. It's like, how are you so much nicer than me? That is not what goes through my mind when someone is rushing me. I, I tend to think, no matter what activity I'm engaged in, that I am doing that activity at the pace that that activity ought to be done in. And so I, I, I can sometimes think, you know, maybe instead of going faster, I should slow down and, and make sure that, you know, everyone is safe and accounted for. And, and perhaps I, I can be an example of an unhurried life. No, that's not really what goes on. The truth is I don't like to be rushed because I like to cling to my own sense of autonomy. But reading this passage, I feel a degree of, of vindication because you know who else does not like to be rushed? Jesus. Now, now his motivations are very different. See, again, I like to cling to the illusion of autonomy, where Jesus, who is actually autonomous, doesn't like to be rushed because he has a purpose in his timetable. He doesn't like to go from thing to thing. He doesn't move at breakneck speed because there are tasks to be done and people to be cared for in the midst of delay. See, in this passage, Jesus is presented with what is literally a life and death situation. There is a little girl whose life hangs in the balance. Jesus is her only hope for healing. And what does he do on his way to save her? He stops. He delays. He has a conversation. He takes a detour. See, Jesus was was up to something that those in the situation, couldn't see or appreciate. He was up to something in the delay. And much to our chagrin, this is often how God works. 
As a theologian, Sinclair Ferguson writes, the Lord has his own timetable. It is we who must learn to adjust to it, not vice versa. And this morning, we're going to walk through this passage, and we're going to talk about Jesus' timetable, his propensity towards delay, and what he is able to do in the midst of it. So our story begins with Jesus' return to the west side of the Sea of Galilee. See, on the east side, he was in Gentile territory. And while over there, he had done some, some pretty disruptive things, like create a situation in which 2,000 pigs plunged themselves into the sea to their deaths. Now, in, in the whole scene, he, he actually saved a man and got rid of a legion of demons. But he messed with the local economy with the whole pigs thing. And so the people in the area insisted that, that he leave and, and do so quickly. So now Jesus is back on the west side of the sea, back in Jewish territory, and he is immediately surrounded by throngs of people, people likely curious about what this miracle worker is going to do next. And pretty much as soon as he gets, gets back to the shore, he encounters a man named Jairus. And we're told that Jairus is one of the rulers of the synagogue. Now, rulers of synagogues were, were top leaders of the synagogues, which were local Jewish places of worship. And as such, these synagogue rulers were prominent members of their communities. These weren't priests, they were laymen, and, and their responsibilities were largely administrative. And so they took care of the buildings and they oversaw worship. And that's who this Jairus was, which means that he was an important person. But when he comes to Jesus in this text, he sets all of that aside. Why? Because his 12-year-old daughter was sick to the point of death, and he believed that if Jesus would only lay his hands on her, that she would be made well. Now, this request coming from a prominent person in the community to someone that the religious establishment uh, treated with suspicion at best, this being Jesus, this was a big deal in and of itself. But what makes it an even bigger deal is the way in which this request was made. Let's look at verses 22 and 23. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. Jairus' need was so great and the situation was so dire that he jettisoned all dignity and pride. We're told that he fell at Jesus' feet and implored him earnestly. He literally begged Jesus for help. Now at that time, one, may, one might fall prostrate before an important person like a king. One, might, one may uh, be willing to prostrate themselves before God in worship. But for someone like Jairus to do this before a poor carpenter from Nazareth, that would have been unheard of. But we know it was entirely appropriate, as Jesus would go on to demonstrate. And Jairus' humble submission to Jesus is striking, and it is important. And it may just be the reason why he, apart from his disciples, is one of the few people actually named in the Gospel of Mark. 
This is an example to all of us about the proper approach to Jesus. And how does Jesus respond? Verse 24, and he went with him. Jesus doesn't say a word, he just goes. He hears of this man's suffering and sets out to alleviate it. And we're told in the same verse that a great crowd follows, probably composed largely of curious people wondering what is going to happen next. They are intrigued by this unexpected union of respected synagogue ruler and young, largely outcast rabbi. And this is then the setting for the delay. As the story unfolds, we are introduced to another person in a desperate situation. And in verses 25 and 26, we read this. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. Here we encounter a woman who had been dealing with what is most likely a form of uterine disease that would have placed her on the fringes of society because of the constant flow of blood. This, this would have made her ceremonially unclean. So then in addition to the very real discomfort of her condition, she also had to deal with the social pain of exclusion. Now before moving on, I think it's, it's worth taking a second to discuss the laws surrounding bodily cleanness and uncleanness in the Bible. See, we see them in the Old Testament, and they are painstakingly laid out in the book of Leviticus. And I think several millennia removed from the giving of these laws that can be hard for us to wrap our minds around. First, I think it is incredibly important for us to note that to be in a state of uncleanness was not necessarily to be in a state of sin. The two are not equivalent. God designed our bodies to function in the way that they do. And in the normal course of life, there are natural processes that would make both men and women unclean for a period of time. So to be in a state of uncleanness doesn't necessitate that someone did something wrong or dirty or shameful, or that our bodies doing the things that they were designed to do is somehow wrong or dirty or shameful. No, not at all. In fact, God tells us in his word that our bodies are fearfully and wonderfully made. That is a truth for every single one of us here. Even if there is more of our bodies than we would like for there to be, even if we feel our bodies decaying in various ways, even if they're not doing the things that we hope that they do, or even if they're doing the things that have social stigma, our bodies are fearfully and wonderfully made. So instead, there's, instead of, of uncleanness being uh, something that, that we ought to be ashamed of, in them, in these laws, there's a recognition of the power and importance of life. See, when the forces of life, namely blood or semen, are lost, one is temporarily, according to these laws, in a state of uncleanness. And in that state, one had to enter into a period of reckoning before God, before coming into his presence. This is almost a way of recognizing our creatureliness before our creator. So the tragic thing for this woman is that she would have been stuck in this perpetual state of reckoning. It would have made it impossible for her to live a normal life. 
And she had been living in this way for 12 years. Now, verse 26 tells us that she had sought help before. In fact, she had spent all that she had on various physicians. But instead of getting better, her condition only, only grew worse. She had expended all of her options. But there's potentially one more source of hope, and we read about that in verses 27 through 28. She had heard reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. She had heard reports about this Jesus and the greatness of his power. And so she comes up with a plan. Her plan was, I'm going to go touch him and that'll be enough. Now, on the one hand, I think that this shows the greatness of her faith. She believes that Jesus is so powerful that even a touch from him would be enough. But on the other hand, it shows, that it shows the imperfection of her faith. There's a little bit of superstition wrapped up in it. And she apparently shared a belief that was common in her day that the power of a person could be transmitted through their clothing. So she thought by touching Jesus' garment, she might have access to his power. So that is what she did. She sneaks her way through the crowd, likely not wanting to draw attention to herself because of her unclean status. And she reaches out and touches him. And when she does... We read, immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Her imperfect faith in the perfect Messiah was enough. She was healed immediately. All of those years of suffering and isolation were now over. She has been restored. Now, her goal was to do a sort of touch and run. She didn't want to draw attention to herself. She didn't want to linger. But Jesus, despite the life-saving mission that he was on, Jesus had other plans. And what follows is, is so powerful, and it is the reason for the delay. After the healing took place, we read, And Jesus, perceiving in himself the power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? They're getting a little salty here. And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened, what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. No touch and run. Jesus wasn't going to allow this woman to live in some sort of half-truth. And more importantly, he wasn't going to let her think that he was just some miracle worker who didn't care about knowing her. In the middle of a life-saving mission, Jesus stops and he asks what seems to the disciples to be a ridiculous question. Right? As hordes of people are pressing in on him, he senses the healing power go out from him, and he delays. 
putting Jairus' daughter's life in jeopardy. He delays so that he could have a conversation with this woman who would have spent most of her, enti- most of her adult life on the margins. He calls her out with the intention of drawing her in. Well, when he first calls her out, this woman is terrified. She comes to him in fear and trembling, likely expecting some sort of rebuke. Why? Well, because she is ceremonially unclean. Her touch should have made Jesus unclean as well. He should be furious with her, but he wasn't. Because Jesus came to reverse and do away with those categories altogether. See, her touch, instead of making him unclean, made her clean. And this is the power of Jesus. But I think the beauty of this moment is encapsulated in verse 34 when he tells her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Daughter. In the Old Testament and in later Jewish traditions, daughter was a typical address towards females. It was, it was, in, in, it was an indication of respect and affection regardless of age or, or familial relationship. But this is the only time in the Gospels that we hear Jesus using this address. And who is it used of? This woman who had spent the last 12 years as a complete outcast. This woman who had been isolated, again, for probably her entire adult life. But Jesus wants her to know that her days as an outcast are over. She is now a part of the family of God. So then why the delay? Because this woman mattered, and it mattered to Jesus that she knew it. So from this, there are two things I want to quickly note. First, friends, this is our Savior. This is how he works. Thomas Goodwin describes Jesus as, quote, love covered over with flesh. And I think encounters like this highlight that reality so wonderfully. Jesus cares deeply about this person that seemingly no one else cared about. All the shame that she would have felt about her life, about her body, Jesus undoes it with his love and his kindness. He has made her clean. And the care that he had for her is the same care that he has for you. Regardless of how you see yourself, regardless of how you have been made to feel, regardless of of whether or not you have lived most of your existence out on the margins, Jesus longs to call you son or daughter. And that title is rightly yours by faith. That is the only thing that he requires. Her faith has made her well. It 
it's hard to imagine how meaningful that address would have been to her. This is our Savior. The second thing I want to point out is just that Jesus does beautiful things in the delay. We often want him to work in accordance with our own timetables. We want to to have the urgent in the subject line of all of our prayers. But Jesus knows what he's doing. He sees things that we don't. He knows what is truly urgent. He won't be rushed. And friends, that is actually a good thing. Had he rushed in this instance, this woman may have walked away with physical healing, but she would have been in spiritual ruins. She may have walked away without knowing how Jesus actually saw her. Waiting is hard. Delay often comes with consequences, and we'll see that here in this passage. But God does beautiful things in the waiting. So will you trust him? And that is essentially Jesus' question to Jairus in the verses that follow. Let's look at verses 35 and 36. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. The delay in this circumstance had consequences. It had massive consequences. While Jesus was talking to this woman, hearing the whole truth, drawing her out, pronouncing peace and healing over her, calling her daughter, another daughter was dying. Could you imagine being Jairus in this situation? Your heart would be racing knowing that every single second counts. In any other circumstance, you might see Jesus' encounter with this woman and be touched by it. But not now. And now that you hear that while Jesus is having this, this beautiful interaction, your worst fear has just come true. But Jesus, overhearing what was said, perhaps knowing what is happening in Jairus' heart, looks at Jairus and he tells him, do not fear, only believe. In very economic fashion, Jesus is assuring this desperate father that the people on the ground don't see the whole picture. That Jesus came not simply to abolish categories like clean and unclean. He came to defeat our greatest enemy, death. And this is what we encounter in the verses to come. In verses 37 to the beginning of verse 40, we read, And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. So Jesus sets off to the house, and when he arrives, there is a commotion. There is weeping and wailing. It's likely that in this circumstance, people had, professional mourners had been hired. This was common practice at the time. And 
people would be hired even to, to, to mourn or commemorate the death of the poorest people in the community. And this was a way of marking the tragedy of death. The reality that even though we've grown accustomed to it, it's not the way that things are supposed to be. It is not natural. So Jesus comes into the scene and he immediately questions, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And so they laugh at him. People in the first century knew what death looked like. They were far more acquainted with it than than we are today. There's nothing sanitized or clean or sterile about it. People died in their homes, and people knew what that looked like. So when Jesus declares, she's not dead, she's sleeping, they, they think he must be crazy. But Jesus himself wasn't confused. He knew what was going on. The point that he is making is that because of his power, Death is akin to sleep. Death no longer has power. And so ignoring their laughter, he read, he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. Apparently dying causes one to work up an appetite. Despite what may have been running through Jairus' mind, Jesus cared for this daughter too. And after putting all of the spectators out, he comes to where the child was, takes her by the hand, and utters this very simple Aramaic phrase, Talitha kumi. And we're told in the ESV that it means, little girl, I say to you, arise. And this is true. This is what it literally means. But, but this literal translation doesn't get the whole picture. The, the word Talitha was a pet name. It, it would have been it would be more akin to calling someone uh, a younger person like sweetheart. Again, Jesus is love wrapped in flesh. And the delay that led to the tragedy of this girl's death gave Jesus the opportunity to foreshadow its defeat. See, in Mark's gospel, we've seen Jesus exercise power over demons. He's exercised power over nature like we saw last week. We just saw him exercise power over disease, and now we see him exercise his power over death itself. And this mini-victory over death points to Jesus' ultimate victory. Later in Mark's gospel, we will see the extent of, of Jesus' love for these daughters and for all of us as he takes on all of our infirmities, all of our uncleanness, and our ultimate enemy, death itself, on the cross. He disposed of their power by allowing them to consume him. He faced death for us, but conquered over it through his own bodily resurrection. But friends, this was a work that required patience. When did Jesus come? We're told in Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come. 
Not when we got tired of waiting. Not when we put the pressure on God and told him to hurry up. He came according to his own timetable. And in the process, he did things that the people at the time wouldn't have even dared imagine. Accounting for things that they couldn't have possibly seen. So I want you to think for a moment. What are you waiting for right now? Where is your patience growing thin? Friends, the one who has power over all things, including death, tells us, do not fear, only believe. His timetable is not ours, but he accomplishes beautiful things in the waiting. So will you trust him? Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the reality that Jesus is love covered over in flesh. We thank you, God, for his willingness to be patient with us. We thank you for his love and his grace that he so freely lavishes on us. So Lord, we ask that as we continue to encounter him and his goodness as we see his power, as we see his love. God, we ask that you would enable us to trust that we wouldn't fear, that we would believe. Father, help our unbelief. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.